HTML is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Everybody and welcome back to MCU.html. You're Kevo and you're Nico, and I think we're here to talk about Iron Man two, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. All right. So we we've already watched Iron Man one, and we watched The Incredible Hulk. Well, one of them was good, and one of them wasn't good, and now we're here with Iron Man two. Yeah. I'm excited. Uh, I enjoyed watching Iron Man two again. I don't know that it was necessarily the best film I'd ever seen, but I got a lot out of it. It just felt like it already felt hollow somehow. Hmm. And we'll get into all of that. But it was exciting to get to see these characters grow a little bit more, though something I couldn't help but notice was that this film was jam-packed. Way too much was going on at all times. I understand that it was Iron Man 2. Might as well have been called Iron Man too much. <laughs> I feel like they were in such a rush and in, in, in putting in so much effort to construct this narrative that featured as many heroes as possible and as many recognizable characters as possible. I am going to point out, though, that in all of the additional characters, they only managed to add one major named female character, something I find very insulting. There is such a wealth of strong women in the Marvel Universe and Iron Man Universe to pull from, but I'm grateful for who we got. And we even got Christine Everhart back. So... Yeah. That's kind of a win, although her scene did not flatter the character in any strong way. No, not particularly. But little known fact about Christine Everhart, she actually got her own uh, web series in 2015 and 2016 uh, to bridge the gap between Ultron and Ant-Man, and then to deal with the repercussions of Captain America Civil War, which I have not yet taken a look at myself, but would definitely be investigating uh, for this series. I think a bonus episode to talk about those is great. Kevo, I really appreciate you keeping an eye out for all the different web series and Marvel one-shots. We're still somewhere in the Marvel Cinematic Universe where things are more or less pretty linear, although it's anybody's guess where the hell the Incredible Hulk actually goes. We ultimately do reach a point where the series begin to intertwine and intersect on a regular basis, and it can get difficult to keep track of exactly what there is. I know that I had intended to stay on top of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in terms of the one-shots and the episodes of S.H.I.E.L.D., but somewhere around where S.H.I.E.L.D took a really long time to go anywhere and the one shots were all on the DVDs and I was starting to stream. I lost track. Well, I think there started being fewer Marvel one shots. As for S.H.I.E.L.D., man, I really tried. I really did. And we can always save that for another episode. But to put it short, I gave it like 50 episodes worth of chance and it just couldn't keep me the way the films do. I agree. S.H.I.E.L.D. turned into a, a slow experience for me. I know I didn't give the Inhumans a shot, but that is something I think I will give a shot, and maybe we could even do for this show at some point, since it did air in theaters. That is something that I cannot help but notice. While this is getting way ahead of ourselves, at one point, the Inhumans were slated to be the next big thing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but their lackluster beginnings in S.H.I.E.L.D. seemed to tip off the higher-ups that this might not be the best move. That was followed up by an unsuccessful TV series that had a lot of money and effort put behind it. So, I don't think that the Inhumans were quite right for this version of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm eager to see what other 
aspects of the Marvel Universe escaped my notice while I was trying to keep up with a million other things. And again, I feel so bad saying it, but I kind of did fall out of comics for a really long time, in part because I've been so focused on making Kid Riot and Riot Squad, our comic book that's available at KidRiotComics.com. Shameless plug. Nice. But... I'm so excited getting back into the Marvel Universe in the comics and this this read through that we're doing of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, I know it's I know it's movies, so we're watching it, but in so many ways it does feel episodic and arc based and it's been a really exciting re adventure into the Marvel Universe for me. Yeah, totally. I also like seeing where these movies started and comparing it to where they're at now. It's really interesting to see the parts of the Tony Stark performance that are consistent through Iron Man 1 and 2, and I'm eager to see where they show up in the other films as well. There are definitely still character elements that I remember seeing in Avengers Infinity War that showed up in these two films, though Iron Man 2, as we're going to get back to, it's kind of the, I don't know how to explain it, the black sheep of the Iron Man films. It's the one where he feels the least in character, at least to my memory, having just watched this one. It's the most jumbled, you know, I am the, I, I've decided one day to become the biggest cheerleader for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and so when I'm a cheerleader for something, I become very defensive and defensible over it. But especially having just watched Iron Man 2, I see where the whole thing is very muddled. You made a comment while we were watching the film that you feel like the whole middle act was a whole big bunch of nothing, and that is sort of applicable to the film itself. I feel in a lot of ways like Iron Man 2 was created with the intention of wrapping up any loose threads from Iron Man 1 and setting the stage for the Avengers, both for Iron Man and Tony Stark as characters and for the franchise as a whole. Because don't forget, this was after the acquisition of Marvel by Disney. And this was really when we were first, this was really our first step down the road toward what actually became the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I agree. I also think there's something else to be said about what this was the first for in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This was the first time the past was established in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm, True. Howard Stark was kind of a mentioned looming figure in Iron Man 1, and the Hulk had a number of characters that he carried the baggage of from his Invisible First film. But this was the first time they said, we're going to go back, we're going to establish things that happened in the past, and we're going to say how much they mattered. Creating Howard Stark here had an everlasting and and irreversible change on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Howard Stark goes on to appear in, in a crazy amount of things and is played ultimately by two actors, for the most part. There's an image of him in Iron Man 1 that I don't think really matters. Yeah. But this is this is a character who is going to generate stories in other people's films going forward. That is something else I do want to mention. Iron Man and his character set continually show up in the other films howard stark is a major player in captain america films the uh, main trio of iron man with happy pepper and tony show up in homecoming we also have black widow go on to be the black widow nick fury got his start in two iron man movies and went on to become the guy who dictated the marvel cinematic universe to us firsthand there is something so important about what started in iron man that's kind of inescapable these characters define the rest of the marvel cinematic universe as far as it's gonna go i mean yeah pretty much but before we talk too much about these other films, I think it's time to take another look at Iron Man 2. Kevo, I think you have a backstage tour of Iron Man 2 prepared for us. 
Yeah, my usual factoids. Well, a lot of the people, not a lot, but the director and cinematographer stay the same from Iron Man 1, John Favreau, and Matthew Liberty. The screenwriter on this one is, bizarrely, the actor Justin Thoreau. Wait, Justin Thoreau is in Justin Thoreau of The Leftovers, Justin Thoreau? Do you hear that, Joey Lewandowski? The Leftovers, did you hear that, Joey Lewandowski? Justin Thoreau of The Leftovers? I believe you mean Justin Thoreau of Parks and Recreation. Thank you. Oh, you're right. Actually, that is one of my favorite episodes ever. The scene with Ron Swanson where he calls him a tourist. It's one of my favorite Ron Swanson moments ever. Also known for, you know, many other things. Romy and Michelle. Charlie's Angels sequel. He was the villain in that. He was the evil DJ in Zoolander. He guest starred on an episode of Ally McBeal, which I found especially notable considering Robert Downey Jr.'s extensive role on Ally McBeal. That's a really great point. You know, Robert Downey Jr. had really faded into obscurity until Ally McBeal helped bring him back. Unfortunately, it wasn't where he needed to be in his career at the time, and he had to take a big step back from fame again to get his life together. Ultimately, he re-emerged with Iron Man, where he's doing a tremendous job. But back to Park and Recreation's Justin Thoreau. Well, here's the interesting thing about Parks and Recreation's Justin Thoreau. He's not really much of a writer, and in fact... This is one of four script writing credits that he has to his name, including Zoolander 2, the screenplay for Rock of Ages, and another action film that came out in 2008 that helped revitalize Robert Downey Jr.'s career, Tropic Thunder. Okay, so wait. When you say Rock of Ages, which version of Rock of Ages? Because there's the movie, there's the musical, and there's the movie of the musical. The last one. Okay, so the Tom Cruise one. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately, indeed. Alec Baldwin. We like Alec Baldwin mostly. We do like Alec Baldwin, so that's a plus. Well, uh, and that's why I said mostly. Yeah, he's a problematic fave. Tell me more, though. Well, the person that I, obviously, knowing who I am, was the most fascinated by from this film was the composer, John Debney. He has a very prolific career, going all the way back to the 1990 Jetsons film and Hocus Pocus in 1993. He composed the music for Phantom Manor in Disneyland Paris and Spectra Magic at Magic Kingdom. He did both Princess Diaries movies. He did Emperor's New Groove. He did Spy Kids 1 and 2. He did Spider-Man 2 and 3. He did Cheaper by the Dozen 2 which to me is only significant because Cheaper by the Dozen 1 was scored by Christoph Beck, who will later go on to score Ant-Man, so I found that interesting. The Hannah Montana movie. Next year, he's going to be scoring the Dora the Explorer movie. Uh, He's a frequent collaborator with Danny Elfman and has worked with Jon Favreau as well several times. Uh, Zathura, Elf, This, and later The Jungle Book. Uh, It's always just interesting to me the way that these people have these connections. A lot of the other music for this film, by the way, I discovered in researching this film, was written by Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave, and in fact, he appeared in Iron Man 1 as Insurgent Number 5. Tom Morello has a long-standing history with nerd culture and being a cool guy when it comes to things like comics and comic book movies. He produced a comic book at one point. One year, New York Comic Con had a kickoff party where his band played incredibly political, mellow folk rock for a crowd of people who had absolutely no idea what to do with it. No. But he was a real good sport about it. Yeah, he was great. And then lastly, of course, Make Way for Tomorrow Today was written by the incomparable Richard M. Sherman. As an homage to his own, there's A Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow from the Carousel of Progress. Okay, so now what I've heard is we've discussed how the music in this film was composed by two different people who have extensive history with the Disney 
parks, not just the Disney company. Yeah. So for those of you who aren't too familiar with the pieces of music that Kevo referenced earlier, Phantom Manor is a unique take on the Haunted Mansion that's seated in Disneyland Paris. It's kind of a big deal. It's an incredibly different ride experience from the regular Haunted Mansion, and it's a beloved take on the attraction. There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow is the theme song from the Carousel of Progress, one of Walt Disney's last attractions that he was most passionate about in his life. It originally opened at the 1964 World's Fair before being disassembled, sent over to Disneyland, reassembled in Tomorrowland, and ultimately packed up one more time for the trip down to Walt Disney World when that opened in 1971 to give it a bit more of an authentic Walt touch since he himself was unable to be part of the development of the park at the time. Spectromagic is a unique piece because Spectromagic is a -a one-of-a-kind parade that Disney has never done anything like before or since. Spectromagic was a waltz in 3-4 times, so instead of playing you out on a high, exciting, bright, flashing note like the Main Street Electric Parade, the parade most associated with the end of the night at Walt Disney World or Disneyland, it's a slow waltz carrying you home like a fairy tale lullaby. It was a -a one-of-a-kind parade that sadly saw its demise in 2010, never to return. Wow, the same year this film came out, actually. That's a really interesting point. Thank you for illustrating that. I actually was lucky enough to work in Walt Disney World at the time, and I was the parade escort on the final ever night of Spectro Magic. It was a very wonderful experience, as I have always loved that parade, and it's a nice moment to have in my heart that I was the last escort to ever walk the parade down Main Street. It was also the music that played as Nico and I walked in for our wedding. That is true. We really like Spectral Magic, so you can understand our appreciation of the composer being a part of this film. And we really like Disney, so we were definitely... We had a lot of opinions when it came to the Disney acquisition of Marvel, which I think we definitely need to discuss before we dive into this film properly. Absolutely. One of the things that I remember seeing on Facebook every day at the time, because, you know, Facebook is always the arbiter of what everybody in the world truly thinks. One of the things I saw frequently was people being like, oh, no, now Wolverine's going to be played by Donald Duck and the whole thing's going to be watered down to death. And, of course, Warner Brothers had long ago purchased DC, and nobody ever complained that Batman was going to suddenly eat carrots and be less about the Dark Knight and more about what's up, Doc. However, Disney has a certain cash to its name. That brings Uh, along certain feelings. A certain reputation, for sure. Disney has certainly changed Marvel and directed the course of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You can see them doing the same thing with Star Wars, trying to keep a steady pace of films coming out at a nearly unattainable schedule. And Disney's watermark is all over this film. Whether it's the clear parallels between the Project World of Tomorrow and Epcot Center or it's the World's Fair and the Stark Expo, or even Howard Stark himself being a representation of Walt Disney's imagery from the Disneyland TV show in the 1950s and 60s. Oh yeah, absolutely. I remember sitting in the theater at the time and just being mind-blown at how far they were reaching into the Disney image, the Disney iconography, and the Disney vault, because the merger had been announced in January. This film could not have been filmed since January alone, there had to have been an intention to connect Howard Stark with Walt Disney from the start. I think that he's a great model for a character like that. In my reading about the development of Iron Man, I saw a note where uh, the writer Shane Black, who will go on to co-write and direct Iron Man 3, suggested to Favreau and Robert Downey Jr., That they model Howard Stark on uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who became 
severely depressed after the Manhattan Project. And I think there's a really interesting balance between Howard as Disney and Howard as that. I agree because the Howard as Disney aspect only examines the elements of Howard's legacy that would relate to fame culture. The Stark Expo as this thing everybody could be a part of. But the first Iron Man went out of its way to remind us at all times that Howard Stark was a war profiteer, that he was a warmonger. To downplay his legacy to just a happy time future man encouraging the best of tomorrow undermines the value of the first film. Pew! Pew, 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 pew! All right, well, I don't think there's anything more to talk about the behind the scenes. I think it's time to dig in. Iron Man 2. Yeah. Come with me. I want to paint a picture for you of beautiful, luxurious, tropical Russia. Ooh. Ooh. A slow pan through Russia as someone is listening to all sorts of Tony Stark news announcements. The walls are covered in them. Gee, you'd think it was like a Russian Tony Stark or something. Maybe it is. Dun, dun, dun. We get a weird story about a sad Russian dude whose dad is dying and blah, 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 real sad. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you love making that noise. It's terrible. It's it's up there with Stain saying a box of scraps. Oh, that's going to be the outro for this episode, isn't it? Oh, we'll see what I come up with. For me, the beginning of this film kind of works. It at least takes me somewhere it mirrors the first one opening in Golmera. yeah i definitely see where it mirrors the sequence of tony creating the first iron man armor in the cave then all of the imagery where vanko ivan vanko that's the guy we've been following but you've all watched the movie i don't know why i'm worried that you guys don't know what you're talking about you've all done your homework we're treated to a sequence where ivan vanko is working on building his arc reactor suit with the whips that's going to come up later on and it so heavily mirrors tony working in gomera to build the first iron man suit there's so much of it even with the him striking the iron like a blacksmith yeah then we cut away from that there's so much arc reactor it's so much arc reactor if you thought that the words arc reactor came up too much in the first film hang on because guys you're about to hear that phrase way too much yeah, that's what this whole movie is about, basically. The whole movie is about the arc reactor, which actually makes a lot of sense. One of the big things is that they make it seem as though the arc reactor should be a revolutionary technology that changes the world, but for some reason, it doesn't seem like much comes of it in the first movie. The only thing Stain wants from it is to power a weapon, so it made a lot of sense that somebody else would use an arc reactor for the same purpose. Yeah. In the first movie, we had to wait, how long was it? Like 36 minutes to get to any real Iron Man action? Mm-hmm. This movie does not waste more than five. We are immediately treated to Tony falling from the sky in the Iron Man suit. It's a neat change because Hulk and Iron Man both made us wait a rather long time to get to the superheroics, or at least the superhero-esque action. Here, Tony opens on being Iron Man, loving being Iron Man, having the time of his life, giving a presentation at the Stark Expo, a tribute to his father. Which I love, as we've said before, you know, I love the Howard Stark as Walt Disney stuff, and I really enjoyed the energy and enthusiasm of the sequence. I believe you had a different take that I definitely saw more as you explained. Absolutely. One of the big themes of this movie is Tony Stark is kind of losing it. Tony Stark only ever had to balance being a playboy, a genius, and running a company before, and three fronts he could handle. Suddenly, he is emotionally connected with Pepper in a significant way. He's also Iron Man and a superhero, and all of a sudden, he wants to be the best possible humanitarian he can. It's a lot. It is a lot. And we see him starting to crack under that pressure. Right 
off the bat, Tony's in his suit. The dancers around him are little more than Hooters girls running around in light-up Iron Man half-tops. And Tony's first line is, it's good to be back. We can already see the ego drive all over him. And the first line being so self-referential, I I don't know if maybe that's even something I feel about this movie. This movie has so many things where I just want to be like, uh, you were so close to great. It's almost like this movie knows that it kicked off a new superhero era with its first film. So with this one, it gets to be a little bit more egotistic. But the ego really is not just what breaks Tony Stark. In a lot of ways, it is what breaks this film. Tony makes a comment early on about how nobody in the world is going to challenge him. He has instilled an age of world peace just by being Iron Man. And he says that none of them can rival him on his best day. But Tony, buddy, this is far from your best day. You're being a showman, not a hero. You're being a performer, not a CEO. You are being a razzle-dazzle man. You are not showing anybody the future. You're talking about what you've already done over and over again. He's afraid he doesn't have another idea beyond being Iron Man the first time. And I think how quickly he spirals out of control in this sequence is our first sign that Tony is not well. So the story of this film is almost like a meta metaphor for what the film really is once it started to step down this road of being the marvel cinematic universe you know note that no other marvel superhero has a numbered trilogy all the other heroes just have subtitled films uh that's not really how the marvel cinematic universe is packaged but iron man was still created in an era of there were superhero trilogies and that was how it worked a lot of this era of the MCU is breaking out of that superhero mold and figuring out a new way to be. And part of what this era includes is a whole lot more super new science ideas. We get the idea that Tony could be getting radiation poisoning in his body. That's not the kind of thing that we covered in Iron Man. While Hulk is all about gamma poisoning and gamma radiation, we don't really talk about the effects of it. It's this, oh, no, you could just get real sick. It could be real bad. No, you'll be sad. But with Iron Man... Tony Stark is actually in mortal peril. The next thing that I noticed in this film was the unbelievable number of cameos, one right after another. Now, I'm not sure that all of them were famous at the time. There's Stan Lee as possibly Larry King. Stamio. There's Kate Mara as a server. Yeah, U.S. Marshal, which I loved. So, Kevin, I think you saw something about this Olivia Munn cameo. Yeah, it's weird. Actually, Olivia Munn was originally going to be in the film as a Stark-obsessed woman who appears in Tony's bedroom at his birthday party. And it was going to be a more comedic scene at a point in the film where it was starting to get more dramatic. And so they cut her role. But then going back, they needed another reporter for a few scenes toward the beginning. And so they called her back in. It began begins this sort of non-stop introduction to these big-name actors, one right after another. We cut to Gary Shandling as Senator Stern, not connected to Dr. Stern's from The Incredible Hulk, sort of trying to rain the pain down on Tony Stark grilling him before a Senate committee. This is where we're introduced to Justin Hammer, who is the foil for Tony, the bad guy this film, and we're introduced to the new roadie. We get the first good look at Pepper. Mm. This is just kind of like, this movie is so front-loaded in so many ways, it, it just starts to be a lot all at once. I definitely see that. I really love that opening scene, though the hearing i love seeing tony give back against a character who especially later we find out is you know this is our podcast so spoilers ends up being a hydra agent i found that really fun 
I agree. Tony needs to show that he still has control and command. He needs to be charming and powerful. And this is a great way to see it targeted at somebody who sucks. And yet the people in his life who have his respect the most, Pepper Potts and Rhodey, are very clearly displeased with him for most of this scene. Although Rhodey does smile a few times. And, you know, within character of what Rhodey would find amusing. But overall, they both maintain their very guardian-like... Watch of Tony. Yeah, exactly. Well, Tony has to be out of control in this scene because who he's pitted against is too ridiculous for words. I hate Justin Hammer. I don't particularly care for Sam Rockwell. I think he goes in that category of always way too smarmy. Mm. And I hate Justin Hammer, who is just dripping with desperation to be taken seriously as an adult with every motion and word he has. Yeah, you know, when you said foil to Tony Stark earlier, I was almost insulted on Tony's behalf because the way that I, the impression that I get from Tony throughout the entire film is that Hammer barely shows up on his radar. I don't think that Tony does anything in this film to show up Hammer any more than anyone else he would come across in his daily life. I don't think he cares. Every time Hammer referred to Tony as Anthony Stark, you know, it's clear he's doing it antagonistically. Or when he calls him the Wonder Boy. You're the Wonder Boy, not me, Tony. I don't think Tony cares. I. It's almost like he's trying not to laugh at, at how not under his skin Hammer is getting. Which is actually the most powerful part of Hammer. Hammer is so desperate to be taken seriously. He makes all these foolish moves over and over again. Yes. He is bested in this scene by Tony. He is bested every single sequence throughout the film. At one point, Christine Everhart does return. She's doing a piece on Justin Hammer. As soon as Tony walks in the room, Christine can't think about anything but getting away from Justin to work with Tony to do another piece with Tony because Tony is the story. Tony is always the story. Justin Hammer is a small town fun guy. Justin Hammer cannot survive the big city as a big fish. And Tony Stark is the human representation of everything that Justin Hammer can never be that he wishes he was. There's a line much later in the movie where Justin Hammer says uh, he might even get laid. And yeah, when he's talking about going to the Stark Expo and he's bragging about how he's going to go and show everyone up and maybe I'll even get laid. Like what adult man needs to say that to another adult man to feel like a man? Oh, my God. Seriously, brother? Oh, my God. So this scene continues to get stronger and stronger with Don Cheadle's. Rhodey is immediately this incredible powerhouse. He's so excellent. Instantly, Hammer's put in his place. Pepper communicates so much with just some faces. And Tony says, I am the nuclear deterrent. And it's this idea that that all of these people in this room are fighting to be the most powerful person and they all want their hands on, on Iron Man. And it's all about these weapons and the weapons that these men are. It's an intensely strange scene. Well, one of the things that I love most about Sam Rockwell's performance as Justin Hammer is, uh, to bring up another Charlie's Angels reference, he was the villain in the first Charlie's Angels film, much like Justin Theroux was the villain in the second one. And he gives a more threatening performance in the Drew Barrymore film than he gives in Iron Man 2. So it's it's clear to me as someone who has seen him 
at least in something lighter where he played darker, that it's not that he's not capable of playing the character strong. And yet at every turn, it is so clear that Justin Hammer does not have the bite to back up any of his bark and how out of his depth he is against every person at every turn, whether it's Tony, whether it's the government, whether it's Vanko later. He just, I don't know how he thinks he ever has the upper hand because he is so constantly failing. I totally get that, and I couldn't agree more. From the moment he begins working with Vanko, I immediately say out loud, no, why are you doing, why are you doing that? You know, he, the man literally is a murderer. We're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Did we have anything else for the courtroom scene? Good question. I love the way that Pepper uh, looks at Tony throughout the entire hearing. It's it's so flat, <laughs> but it's so perfectly flat because Pepper knows it's worse when you don't give him a reaction. Like that's that's when he really knows he's in trouble. Uh, I loved Cheadle's introduction. I feel immediately from his first scene that Don Cheadle is much better in this role than Terrence Howard. From reading I've done and from what I understand, uh, Terrence Howard uh, was not easy to work with. Terrence Howard has a different interpretation of the situation. I don't know the full details, but I stand by the fact that I really feel Don Cheadle is so much better for the role. More to say on that later uh, when we get into the party scene. For now, yeah, no, I, I I really loved this opening scene. I loved this reintroduction to all of the characters. That's about it. I think part of the problem is this movie is so front-loaded with all of the intensity leading up to the Monaco sequences. Then there's an enormous die-off. The party sequence feels very hollow, and I know mm. I'm getting ahead of myself, but we are disproportionately going to wind up talking about the front end of this movie because that is where a lot of the energy is located. Pew! 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 So then we get the whole thing with the palladium poisoning and Pepper comes in, and this is the first time we really get any real Pepper sequence. She's been in the scenes in the background, but this is Pepper. And she comes in, and she's just not having it with Tony today. And that's when PP becomes C&C. Pepper Potts is chairman and CEO. C&C badass factor. Hell yeah, that's what she is. It makes a lot of sense, too, because throughout the last film, we kept noticing how there was no part of the Stark industry that ran without Pepper say-so. It makes sense here that as the story needed to shift around so that the characters could each be in different locations, allowing for multiple plots, instead of needing Tony Stark to be everywhere, giving Pepper the business side of things to run when she doesn't have true superpowers other than being, like, the best person, this gives them an easier way as filmmakers and storytellers to segment the story out into separate pieces. Plus, you know, Tony saying, it's you, it's always been you, gets me right in the feels. Uh, right in the feels, but not right in the snowy fields of Russia. Uh which is where we just sort of stupidly cut back to because the whiplash stuff... Oh, hint, hint, hint. Ivan Vanko is whiplash. Sorry for the spoilers. That's all going on in the background for so long, and, and the hammer stuff is going on in the background for so long. It takes forever for there to be like a real villain at about 23 minutes and 23 seconds, not that I checked the timestamp. We get to meet Natasha Romanov. Yeah, or Natalie Rushman, I believe. I'm not a huge fan of that cover name. It's Natasha Russian. 
It really is. It's so on the nose. And I think part of the situation is that they wanted to introduce the Black Widow because they wanted a strong female superhero. They wanted someone who made sense with Iron Man. Of course, Black Widow did have a relationship with Iron Man in the comics and then went on to co-star in Daredevil. The title was temporarily renamed Daredevil and Black Widow for several years. She then turned to the Champions and the Avengers. But she did start with Iron Man, so it was really great to see her included here. But the problem is, for her first 40 minutes out of a two-hour movie that she is not in the first 20 minutes of, she is not at all the Black Widow. It's another case of where they're telling us who a character is by defining them by who they're not. It just doesn't work for me. And there's a lot of moments where they seed the fact that she's the Black Widow. Obviously, the moment where she takes down Happy Hogan. Jonah pointed out as we were watching it, even the scene later at the party where the men crash through the ceiling. Natasha takes a very defensive pose, and that's great characterization, but it's still a really weird disconnect between who we know Natasha to become later in this franchise with who she is now. I agree. I think it was another case of where they weren't sure what the Marvel Cinematic Universe was going to look like, so they just sort of went with what felt good. And while we're talking about the format of these films, I can't help but notice that this film lacks the either implicit or direct sex scene of the previous two films. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it is any less visibly heterosexual, but it's certainly less explicitly sexual. I don't believe it's even less heteronormative either. One of the things we both commented on is it's not just that Natasha feels out of character while playing this Natalie person. It's that she is also playing to Tony Stark's weaknesses and she's kind of putting on a more sexual performance than I believe we would normally get from the Black Widow. Mm, We're introduced to her as a sex object from the commercials. I remember there was the clip of her flipping happy and we cut to Tony saying, I want one. And that's how we were introduced to ScarJo in this franchise. ScarJo was introduced as I want one. That's not a very attractive way to treat your first female superhero by definition of like superhero. I've played up how much I love Pepper and I have been very supportive of Pepper and I even thought Betty was one of the best things about Hulk. But this is the first time you're putting someone in the spandex that is a woman and you need to treat her better than that yeah well speaking of things that deserve to be treated better the black widow stuff leads into some kind of eye rolly moments the monaco stuff is just another example of bigger and bigger but not necessarily better before just one iron man and not a lot of travel outside of scenic gomera now two iron man Monaco! Race cars! It's like they got a bigger budget, so they just thought, balls to the wall, do whatever you want. Yeah, I liked a lot of this scene, but I definitely hear where you're coming from as well. I enjoyed that a lot of Tony's antics aren't coming from a place of wanting attention, but rather from a place of fear of his own mortality. So that was really interesting to watch. The scene where Pepper and Happy arrive to deliver the suit to Tony is hands down still, I think, one of the funniest scenes in the entire MCU. Were you aiming for him or me? Because I couldn't tell! I agree. I think their dynamic, that passion, that chemistry is what really makes the film. Uh, You had made a comment while we were watching the movie that by the time the Black Widow showed up, you felt that Happy had appeared more in Iron Man 2 than he had in all of Iron Man 1. And I very much agree with you. Absolutely. In Iron Man 1, he might as well have been named unnamed bodyguard. He barely spoke. He barely interacted with the plot. And within half an hour, Happy is really integral to the plot of this film. To the point where he almost has a romantic spark with Natasha, or at least Happy would love to think he has a romantic spark with Natasha, and Natasha is just too nice to break his sad little heart. 
basically, and one of the many points of heterosexual visibility that people sort of brush past. They don't really take a lingering eye on the fact that, yeah, it's clear that Happy is very attracted to Natasha, as anyone would be, but still, these things count. I do want to jump ahead to something you talked about. Well, the Monaco stuff, for me, does drag out a bit. There is some amazing comedic timing in that sequence in the car. So... Tony has decided to sub in and drive his own race car in this Monaco event, and Vanko has decided he's going to attack this Monaco event, so now he has even easier access to Stark, as everything is going wrong, Happy and Natasha and Pepper work together to get Tony his emergency Iron Man case, and they have to, of course, drive on to this Grand Prix, which is normally a race track, and now Whiplash, which is Ivan Vanko's code name that he has you know, taken onto the stage and he's got these giant electric whips uh, it's a life and death every moment experience it's an intense scene and they manage to make it fun and light and it's a really great moment for Iron Man 2 it's the kind of moment that I had hoped would sustain the film sadly I do feel that the film goes downhill after Monaco I don't genuinely believe the film comes back but this fight sequence is amazing. We have Whiplash cutting the car in half every two seconds. We have Happy trying to be in the fight. We have Pepper knowing she has to be there but being scared for her life because she's not in a giant metal suit. And we have Tony Stark with this this moment of rage as he is putting the suit on. There's this moment where he puts his hands into the gauntlets and pulls the case open. And he has this look on his face like, you fucking made me do this in front of my family? It's, it's such a beautiful moment of rage in his eyes. Yeah, you pointed that out to me, and I definitely agree. You know, he makes these comments about, this is my first vacation in two years. He's just so pissed that this is happening right now. The end of this sequence is really anticlimactic. Iron Man just sort of puts Venko down and I think that was the intent. It's really easy to read this as kind of a silly plot hole. Oh, Stark wasn't meant to be in the race car, but I don't believe Vanko's plan was ever to actually kill Stark at this point. I believe Vanko was only trying to make a statement, get arrested, and get his presence to Stark. Make sure Stark knows there's this man doing this who attacked his race. It's a very important thing for Vanko to break Tony mentally. He's not looking to kill him in this scene. So... The fact that Vanko goes down so easy, it bothers me, but it doesn't kill me. What about you, Kevo? It's not just to break Tony mentally. It's, as he said, you know, it's to make a god bleed in front of the world. And it wasn't until we started talking at this very moment, and I was thinking about that concept and how that's... It's a weird plot for a villain to have because it's ultimately, no matter what the hero does they're going to embarrass themselves in front of the world and it's unfortunately something that i just realized for the first time we're going to repeat with captain america's civil war that's really ultimately all baron zemo wanted to do was break apart the avengers it's disappointing to realize that that's a repeated theme and i'm wondering how i will feel about that now once we get to that sequence in captain america Especially because early Marvel Cinematic Universe films are really concerned with the idea of legacy, and I don't mean this as hatefully as this is going to come out, but early Marvel Cinematic films are very concerned with this sort of white savior notion of legacy, whereas later Marvel Cinematic films are concerned with the struggle of survival and humanity itself. This is still when Marvel Cinematic films were about the people putting on the suits, not the people they're meant to be saving. Yeah, I definitely see that. Even the Hulk, all of the figures who are going to be in that circle vision shot when the Avengers are standing back to back, it's really about them as heroes and icons. 
So anyway, then we pick it up with Vanko in custody. Uh, kind of a dull scene, to be honest. I liked seeing Tony speak. I believe it's French, but that's about it. The thing I liked was that Tony specifically gives Ivan tech advice right off the bat. I don't know if he's trying to big dog him or just tell him that you can't fluster me because I'm smarter than you, but Tony right off the bat gives it to Vanko about his technological ability. And then that's going to come back and bite him in the ass later in the film, which I think, you know, good. What were you thinking? Like, trying to show off like that. I'm also really annoyed that very quickly after this, a good Samaritan type helps, I guess a bad guy good Samaritan type, helps Vanko out, and it's very quickly obviously Hammer, and it's just so frustrating because it's just hammer's too stupid he's just too stupid but he's a dangerous kind of stupid stain was too smart and that was part of the problem stain knew too much and never got his due blah 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 white man problems hammer is actually too stupid and i feel like specifically from the moment where he sees that vanko hacks into his systems after being like oh we're gonna have to get you some super duper encoded passwords and he breaks right in that's the tip-off right there hammer that you do not have this guy under control not at all it it I just can't stand Hammer. There's nothing else to it. Yeah, basically. All right, so then we transition out of Monaco. We see Tony attempting to tell Pepper about his issues. And, you know, as a Pepper Potts, I'm a little bit annoyed at Pepper for not noticing that Tony was behaving strangely. He says that he he wants to go to Europe and it's a great place to be healthy. And I'm like, Pepper, red flags, red flags, Pepper. I know he can be annoying, but like, pay attention. Come on, it's your job. Whatever. So then we get back home and there's all the controversy and Rhodey's the first person to find out that Tony is dying and everyone's sad and then we transition into the party. I am hypercritical of the party. I find the party to be one of the lowest moments of the Marvel Cinematic Universe storytelling. It bothers me so much. Number one, the story it's referencing is something known as Demon in a Bottle, where Tony Stark was facing alcoholism in a very real way that was crippling his ability not just to be a superhero, but to function as a man or a person in the world. It was becoming increasingly hard for him, and he wound up having to give up the suit. This is a really 10-minute version of that, and it's not a true depiction of alcoholism, although alcoholism can be defined as any time you use alcohol to escape your problems. This is much more clearly him acting out out of fear of dying and in some ways it cheapens the reality of this being an alcoholic character and you know john favreau tried to say that they weren't really doing the demon in the bottle version but still anytime that you try to touch on alcoholism in just a 10 minute span the only time i've ever really excused it in any way is the joss whedon show dollhouse which got its order truncated so they went through like five years of storylines in about six episodes it's still ridiculous but at least i understand there they were attempting to condense when they knew they didn't have more it's almost insulting to the notion of alcoholism the way that they treat it in this film i agree I also understand what you're talking about with the dollhouse situation. However, I feel if you can't truly depict alcoholism, it's not a disease you should touch on. If your order is truncated and you know it's truncated in advance, you should probably pull back on touching on a story that has destroyed and affected so many lives. That's fair. That's fair. Tony takes things a bit too far despite the abridged version of alcoholism that is presented. He's clearly drunk in the suit at the party, showing off, blasting the repulsor ray at champagne bottles that are being thrown into the air, raining glass and 
and champagne on people. It's just too ridiculous. He is absolutely going too far. This is the party boy we were warned about at the beginning of Iron Man 1. I love a good Gallagher reference, but yeah, no, it's it's some very dangerous behavior, and you really can't blame Rhodey when he shows up in another Iron Man suit. You really can't, and I love that Rhodey immediately goes downstairs, and there's a suit, theoretically, waiting for him that he understands how to operate. This tells us that at some point, Tony knew there could come a day where Rhodey would need to put on the suit and take charge. And this is the scene that I was referring to earlier, where I'm really glad that it was Don Cheadle instead of Terrence Howard. I really feel a strong underlying jealousy from Terrence Howard's performance as Rhodey, and I really feel like that would have come across much more strongly in this scene. This wouldn't have been Rhodey doing this to protect others and even protect Tony from himself. At no point during his fight with Tony do I feel like Rhodey is doing this to get back at Tony. It's always just to help him and protect him, even when he's mad at him. And I feel like Terrence Howard's Rhodey, there would have been some smack talk, some who's the big man now, Tony. And that's not what I like from this character. I don't know that I would have necessarily expected to see the script be different to reflect an angrier Rhodey. But I do think that Don Cheadle is able to play it with a softer conviction, an important distinction from the aggressiveness that I feel from Terrence Howard. Because I don't know that I feel jealousy, but I definitely do feel he is a more aggressive roadie in a way that does not suit the character or improve on the performance in any way. The fight goes on for a little too long. There's a few too many segments of it. It feels like it's over multiple times. Yeah. And at the end, they reveal that everybody, all of the guests at this party, have been watching Iron Man and War Machine as Tony and Rhodey. And it's very clear it's the two of them. They've both opened their helmets. They, the guests have all been watching this fight go on in the background and the guests run in fear when Tony screams at them. It's, it's a really embarrassing, awkward moment. And I honestly had thought that all of the guests had run away at one point. The scene is very chaotic. It's not the most tightly directed scene I'd ever seen. And I, I don't know. I really have loved Favreau's work on the first two. But there's moments in the second one that make me very okay with the fact he did not come back to direct the third. Much like the tone of the actual scene itself in the story, it's a very awkward and uncomfortable scene, and it's best to just transition on to Rhodey finally delivering the suit to Major Hotness from Episode 1, and Iron Man having his encounter with Nick Fury and Natasha at the donut stand. So Hammer's trying to get his hands on these suits from Rhodey, and he's offering Rhodey and the military weapon after weapon that Hammer Industries has created, and he's trying to get his hands on the suit. No matter what he does, they seem unimpressed. In the end, they're willing to make the trade. Just, it would take everything Hammer has for one piece of Stark tech. Now, that is what my notes said, but I do feel that that is a bit of an oversimplification. To refer to the suit as one piece of Stark tech is an extraordinary understatement. True. It's a million weapons in one. Elsewhere, Pepper kind of has to put her foot down on TV. They're talking about how Pepper has no idea what she's doing and doesn't deserve to run a company. And she kind of tells Tony to get lost so that she can figure out what she's got to do with her business. Natasha and Nick Fury emotionally beat Tony on the nose with a newspaper like the sad, wet puppy he is for his behavior this part of the film. (laughs) 
We continue to get very little by way of answers from Nick Fury as to what exactly the Avengers initiative is. They're still being very fast and loose with the definition of the Avengers at this point. That does bring me to something pretty major that happens later on in this film. Tony comes to realize that his father had come up with a new element, but the technology at the time limited his ability to make it, and he hid the element in the design of the Stark Expo. While Tony is trying to design technology capable of creating this element, which would be a suitable replacement for Palladium and would save his life, thanks Dad, Coulson shows up. While Coulson is there, they're going through the things in Stark's lab, and one of the things they come across is clearly Captain America's shield. Which I think is pretty cool. I do like the moment, but at the same time, I have a weird reaction to neither one of them really appreciating the gravity of what's in front of them. Coulson, who evidently has Captain America trading cards in his pocket with him at all times, makes no remark about this shield in any way. He doesn't even look phased. He's just sort of like, oh, do you know what this is? There's no emotion. There's no connection. In so many ways, the Marvel Cinematic Universe was drawn by the seat of its pants based on who was in charge. We're about to approach the era where Joss Whedon is in charge. The John Favreau era is a lot of fun explosions, but the Joss Whedon era is always about the man in the suit. And that's something we're going to come across in his Avengers for his Tony. I have two notes in defense of Phil not reacting more to the shield. One is that he's probably trying to keep his cool in front of his charge. And two is that his love of Captain America is really played up more than it is genuine to the character, especially the more we've gotten to know the character. It's really only a the Avengers thing. It's later revealed that he didn't even really have those cards in his pocket. They were in his locker and... Fury pretended they were in Coulson's pocket to drive the point home to the Avengers, and that I don't think really much at all in the 50 episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that I watched, I got much fanboyness over Captain America from Coulson. It's uh, one of those really horrible examples of, you know, you're right, it's exactly what you said, it depends on who's in control of the character, what version of the character we see, and the Joss Whedon version here or later in the Avengers 2012 is far more Captain America fanboy than we are given of the character otherwise. One of the things that I think we're going to come to discover as we discuss these movies on this series is how the person in charge completely shapes the era of the Marvel Universe. When Joss Whedon is in charge, his touch is a little bit on everything. He's the one who recommended to Kenneth Branagh to cast Chris Hemsworth as Thor. He also did rewrites on Thor to create the Hawkeye scene. He assisted with rewrites on Captain America. He then wrote Avengers 1. He wrote and directed Avengers 2. And the other films in Phase 2 worked to support Avengers 2 as that story was made to look like it was going to be something. It kind of didn't go anywhere. That was something we talked about, that Avengers 2 kind of feels like this random note the same way Iron Man 2 feels kind of like a random note. Mm, Yeah, there are definitely certain threads in this franchise that are picked up and sort of dropped. I have one that I want to get back to with Pepper once we get uh, further in the plot of the film. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves and keep us back. But yeah, there's a lot of strange things that are picked up and then dropped in this in this franchise sometimes. Well, I'm actually good to get to pretty much the end of this film. 
quickly after creating the new element, all of the pieces of the plan seem to come together. Hammer is very excited to debut his new drones that had been converted to drones at Vanko's suggestion. Hammer had been looking to sell Iron Man suits because he is incapable of an original thought and only wanted to copy Tony Stark verbatim. But Vanko could see the beauty in a different idea and created drones that he could secretly control behind Hammer's back. Hammer is giving his presentation at the Stark Expo with Pepper in the audience and... Of course, Hammer attacks as Tony gets there, leading into an all-out war of the suits. Yeah, uh, it's it's a pretty exciting scene for most of the scene. Obviously, as many people do who are uh, familiar with the revelation, I was bawling when we got to the scene of the little kid holding up his fake repulsor ray and Iron Man landing behind him. As many MCU fans know, that is now retroactively confirmed to be Peter Parker at the Stark Expo. So I love that. I really hope we get that referenced in a future film as well. But I definitely think this scene, it goes on for way too long. It's another one like the party, as Nico said earlier. You keep thinking it's over and then it's not. And then you think it's over and then it's not. And at a certain point, the movie just needs to end. Either you need to keep your action sequence tight and high energy throughout, or you need to stop having these pauses in the middle of them. Completely. Once the foregone conclusions are clear, once Hammer has lost control of the drones on stage and looks like a fool and has to run off, once Rhodey discovers the War Machine suit that he is wearing no longer belongs to him and is only responding to Vanko, and Iron Man realizes he has to destroy a whole lot of technology in the middle of Queens, everything comes clear how it's going to go. Vanko escaped from his cell, so we have to assume he's somewhere on property, and he must be looking to defeat Iron Man. Pepper is trying to remain in control, and Natasha has no choice but to come out of her secret identity. She's sent on a mission with Happy to Hammer Laboratories, where she's able to get Rhodey back control of the War Machine suit by rebooting the OS, which leaves me wondering, okay, Natasha was able to take control of the War Machine suit, how come she couldn't deactivate all of the drones? I mean, unfortunately, the answer is probably they wanted a scene of War Machine and Iron Man fighting drones together. We can pretend that she was trying the entire time in the background, and it's just really boring to cut to her trying to hack into this system. It's it's negligible. I, I excuse it mostly, even though I feel like this action sequence perhaps goes on a bit too long, but I definitely hear what you're saying. Uh, I do love that scene, though, of her hacking into the systems and the three-way video call with Pepper chiming in and upset that Tony was dying. It's a really great sequence, and it's one of the more natural sequences I feel Black Widow has in this entire film, where a lot of it she seems out of character. And I don't know if it's because she hates this job of having to look after Tony. It would account for some of her odd behavior, like her over-sexualness with him, her subservience to Pepper... But uh, she doesn't really feel like Nat in this film, except for the action sequences toward the end. And even then, she's very clunky. And I wonder if that's because the person who really helped develop Nat was Joss Whedon on Avengers. The, the Nat that Joss Whedon crafts in Avengers is the Nat that shows up in subsequent Captain America films, is the Natalie that we come to associate with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But it takes somebody with a little bit more vision for the character. I appreciate everything John Favreau did, but so much of John Favreau's story is exclusively about Tony and everybody and how they react to Tony. And that's part of what makes it hard to introduce a character like Black Widow in a film like this because it's not about Black Widow. 
Agreed. We're going to get to some places later on in the Marvel Universe where I feel very much the same way I love Falcon, and I feel Falcon gets an unfair shake in his first appearance, though I do believe that they have gone out of their way to make Anthony Mackie feel incredibly welcome in the pantheon of heroes. I believe Bucky kind of... I believe we see... Okay, I believe we are told Bucky is cooler than Bucky ever really is shown to be. Mostly Bucky just grunts and punches. The MCU is really lucky to be able to soar on the excitement that fanboys and girls have for the character of Bucky, for his wounded puppiness, for Stucky as a pairing. It's really one of the things that has helped elevate the Captain America franchise that I don't think it would have been as successful without. So, speaking of things that weren't successful... Vanko has absolutely no shot in shit. The two Iron Men work together to repulsor Ray him in his giant, basically Iron Monger costume. I think he's supposed to be Whiplash and then become the Crimson Dynamo, but he's just a big clunky suit again. The bad guy just seems to wear a big clunky suit again. Now, what's interesting is in Iron Man 3, there is no bad guy wearing a big clunky suit, and that I greatly appreciate. Good point. But... This movie, we get another big, dumb, clunky suit, another guy who just wants to punch Iron Man and fill him with laser holes, and once again, Iron Man manages to get away. They blow the stuff up. Everybody's saved. I like the sequence uh, similarly to the way that Iron Man tricked uh, Iron Monger into getting his suit iced up in Iron Man 1. I liked that they called back the moment where Rhodey and Tony hit each other with their repulsor rays at the party as a way to defeat the villain. I think that's pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, it's not like you don't think Vanko is going to be vanquished. So it's mostly just getting to the foregone conclusion. And speaking of foregone conclusions, the end of this movie, the falling action, there are so many. Okay, we obviously knew this was coming from the middle of the movie on. One of the weirder moments, though, that I wanted to touch on is the moment where Hammer is arrested. The way that he speaks to Pepper and says things like, oh, you're trying to pin this on me. I see what this is. No, Hammer, this is your fault. And Gwyneth Paltrow portrays this weird, actually concerned reaction. I don't know if that was a thread they were going to pick up that they ultimately decided not to. But that's what I was referring to earlier with... I don't know what that moment was supposed to mean. He is the bad guy. Right, but he's a sniveling, coward, half-man piece of garbage. He's literally trying to pin it on someone else who the news media has just said is unqualified for her job and is completely out of her depth, who is also constantly at these explosive scenes and always in the heart of these battles. He's not a smart man. He's just a man who wants to get out of trouble. I don't think they were trying to go for anything other than this sniveling little piece of shit was like, no, cops, get her. She's bad. I think he was literally just trying to throw the stolen goods in her hand and say, look, she's got them all along. I get that. It's just knowing how many things get cut from films. It's a weird moment to waste seconds on, in my opinion. I think so much of Justin Hammer's dialogue and so much of his story was incredibly wasted. I genuinely believe you could just this side of lift Justin Hammer out of this story. It's not hard to make it Whiplash and Senator Stern that Mm. caused all of this. You could easily have dropped Stern or Hammer or Whiplash, and you still would have had essentially the same movie, but I wouldn't feel so bogged down by so much stupid in the middle. 
Yeah, I get that, especially because nothing with Senator Stern really comes to a head in this film. Nothing with his trouble with the U.S. government ultimately comes to a head in this film. In fact, I don't think anything really comes of this film, with the exception of a few new characters introduced. Pepper and Tony wind up together, as is expected from the end of Iron Man 1. There's still no true Avengers initiative. They're still making these vague comments about what that might be. They've introduced threads of a few other characters, whether it's in the film, like the Captain America shield, establishing he is a character in this universe, or... Even the Thor tag at the end of the film, which makes me incredibly happy setting up the next film being Thor, a huge favorite of mine. We don't really walk away from Iron Man 2 having accomplished a whole lot. I think I liked a lot of the moments, I loved the performances, but ultimately the story was too full of too much to actually do anything. Kevo, what are your parting notes? What are your walking away feelings on Iron Man 2? You know, I think that's really fair. I think a lot of what you're saying is fair. For as much as I enjoy Iron Man 2 as a film, I don't think it accomplishes much. It entertains me, and I think that it helps develop the characters at least in terms of giving us more to go on of understanding them and seeing more of them one of the moments that i really loved toward the end of the film was when tony says to roadie you kicked ass back there by the way and roadie says thank you you too and they're they're being genuine and i love the friendships in these films i love the positive emotions i love the way that men are not shamed for showing emotions or affection and that's been since iron man one as well and i think that's really wonderful but, you know, ultimately, was this film the most crucial? No, but I was certainly entertained. I actually find it hard to remember too much about Thor. I love Thor so much. Uh, I just kind of, okay, like I can, it's funny because I feel like I can say the entire film beginning to end. I don't feel like I can give a condensed version of it. I think I can just say that one of my least favorite parts is that moment where Jane says seeing, you know, Donald transform into Thor for the first time. Oh. My. God. Yeah, it's not Natalie Portman's strongest performance. I'll certainly give you that. I think Kat Dennings is funny. I think Stellan Starsgard is a real great character. He winds up being such a... Like, Thor in so many ways is such a central movie because whatever in Avengers wasn't set up by Iron Man, I feel like it was set up by Thor. But then I said to myself, oh, wait, Cosmic Cube. Set up by Captain America. You know, maybe one of the things we love the most about Avengers is the way it does pull together the three major Marvel superhero film franchises from Phase 1. At the same time, though, I do remember thinking that Thor was perhaps a little wooden, maybe a little clunky. It's Marvel does not do origin stories quite as well as they do second films and third films, mm. with the exception of Iron Man perhaps being the, the one that's a little different. It's one of the things I think I'm going to later appreciate about the first Spider-Man movie, which in this franchise doesn't have to be an origin story, and the first Black Panther movie, which in this franchise doesn't have to be an origin story, because both of those characters were introduced at the top of Phase 3 in Civil War. Thor was the first Marvel Cinematic Universe film that I was really a part of the MCU for. You introduced me to the MCU between Iron Man 2 and Thor. Iron Man 2 was the first one I saw in theaters, but I still wasn't fully attached to the franchise yet, 
So Thor was my first real MCU fan film. I remember it being a lot to take in. I remember it being very beautiful. I don't know. I'm excited to watch it. It's noteworthy that Thor and Captain America came out only two months apart, much like Iron Man 1 and Incredible Hulk, but here with the intention of being connected. And it's the first time two MCU films come out in the same year in this capacity. So that's going to be very interesting to see and think about as we watch. So, until we make our journey to Asgard, it's been real as always. Kevo, where can everybody find you online? Uh, you can find me on Tumblr, Twitter, and Instagram, assuming Tumblr is still alive, at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also find both of us making our amazing webcomic, Kid Riot and Riot Squad, along with its sister book, Capes and Boots, over at KidRiotComics.com. You can check out my music at Facebook.com slash ActionDuo, as well as check me out on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. So until next time, guys, have a great one, and we'll catch you next. Peace.